Howdy, and welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week we had the pleasure of welcoming back recurring guest and the official Canon Calls doctor, Dr. Story. He came on to talk about COVID-19, of course, and somewhat unfortunately, eventually we will have Dr. Story on as a continually recurring guest, but about you know, something else than, than Rona. But today he talks about immunity. How should we be thinking about that? As well as his own experience with coronavirus that he came down with about a month ago. Before we get started, I wanted to make sure you knew that Douglas Wilson has a brand new novel, Ecochondriacs, the No Quarter November novel. You can find that at canonpress.com. As well as you can head over to the Blog and May Blog podcast and hear the first few chapters on audio. So, without further ado, let's welcome back Dr. Rod Story. Now, welcoming on our favorite recurring guest, Dr. Story, who's back, and we we're going to talk more about COVID nineteen. There's a few updates. You wanted to talk about immunity when you came in, but I also wanted to hear more about you had COVID. I did have COVID. So you we know, can and I start think that's there. interesting. We, we've lived in fear of COVID and, and perhaps you've uh, heard of a few cases out there. Almost everything that we've been hearing has been anecdotal, yep. meaning you, you maybe heard of someone's second cousin once removed right. who had it or read of someone your same age on Facebook who had it in Zimbabwe and then personalized that experience. And I'm not meaning to be glib, but it it is an interesting way that we've been digesting this and then personalizing it, but that's not always giving it context that can help you actually make informed decisions and move wisely. So how'd it go? It was lousy. It was lousy. (laughs) And and I would say that my my experience of COVID was maybe on the the lousy side, uh, more severe side than most cases that I'm seeing. Uh, We have have quite a few cases here in town and and I suspect in the community for our listeners, it's uh, they're experiencing the same. It is widespread in the United States, a bit like a flash flood working its way through. And uh, here it is. For me, interesting enough, I, I felt like I was coming down just extra tired. I had actually taken a couple of days off to do a little winter prep, clean out some gutters and do that kind of thing. Been up and down a ladder. I thought, man, I am just getting old. Why am I so tired? Why do I ache everywhere? Why do I just want to curl up by the fireplace? And then bang, the next day really came down with it. And for me, it was primarily a head cold, a really lousy, super stuffed sinus infection. Uh, I never did lose taste or smell like many people's experience, but then it uh, it was associated with a couple of days of fever, 102. Wow. I haven't had that in a long time since wow. I was hospitalized with pneumonia 20 years ago. Curled up by the fireplace, rode that wave for about three days, and then it transitioned to a, a heavy chest cold, which interesting enough is probably one of the signs or symptoms of people needing to talk to their doctor, because that's the moment where it, it begins to affect more than just be a lousy virus. Okay. Now, we've had you on several times, and it's been nice to sort of get updates. Have we, have we learned anything more about COVID-19 since you've been here last? Well, I think what's interesting is uh, if you get the sense that we have a, an unbalanced approach uh, in the United States, I think you are paying attention. So, you know, in the United States, we've had this, nobody can get it. Stop this at all costs. If you just wear your masks and social distance, you'll keep this from spreading and you'll be a good neighbor. 
And then we've had a second, just wait for that vaccine. It's coming. We're pouring a lot of money into it. And that's really been a, a somewhat of an unbalanced approach because there's some other approaches that we've actually missed out on. One is actually preparing people to get the illness. And now that we're seeing a lot of people getting it, I think the general sense for most people is, oh, well, that wasn't terrible. Or like in my case, wow, that was like a bad flu, but I got through it, stayed at home for 10 days with my family, and then uh, took an antibiotic and some steroids when it started to turn into a chest thing and moved on. Here I am four weeks out and I feel like I'm completely recovered. So, you know, being able to prepare people for what they're going to experience rather than just scare their pants off. And then a fourth is this idea of what to do when people do get sick. Okay. Uh, and, and, and around the world, there's been a lot of effort uh, at establishing best practices. In the United States, we've really taken the opinion of like, oh, don't suggest that medicine. Don't try that one. Even to the point of taking medicines that are in common usage out of doctors' hands and making it illegal to prescribe them. So around the world, there's been efforts at basically handing out bags of zinc and vitamin C and vitamin D, which have been recognized as having a significant benefit early on for people who are experiencing a virus, giving people steroids and a Z-pack or azithromycin mid-course if they are beginning to make that lung transition, and then really working hard to keep people out of the hospital. The United States, uh, as it has been around the world, the experience of being in the hospital is really lousy, and we should honestly be using wise, thoughtful, uh, early treatment and doctors doing that. So that's for me. That's what I've been working hard on in those last couple of weeks is visiting a lot of our elderly patients who have gotten COVID and then watching them closely, talking to them daily, visiting them in their homes and helping them get it through. Now that you've had COVID, has your, uh, in terms of what you prescribe or in terms of how you talk about it, has any of that changed? You know, it, I, not a whole lot. And you guys have been hearing me from early on uh, that we've known who it is that's going to have a hard case of this. And by and large, that's been true. The, the experience that we saw in Italy and the UK and China, it is, is had, has borne out. And so we can be wise about this. We know who it is that's going to get sick and do poorly. Um, I think what is interesting is now there's just a lot of other things that are coming out and people are asking, the, well, what if this and what if that? The what ifs I'm hearing mostly about are the post-viral kind of oddities that happen. And you may have heard of them like, Oh, people who uh, lose their taste and smell. What's going to happen with that? We know that a certain uh, percentage of those people will have diminished taste and smell for six to eight months. We don't really know beyond that. It may be that there is a permanent effect from that. And that's lousy, but it's a, it's a notable thing. In fact, we actually now recognize that viruses do this and they've done this for ages. We just know a little bit more now about the coronavirus family. Right. Let me give you an example. I think we're moving into a time of post-virus awareness, where we know that viruses do some things that can have lingering effects. And they kind of go into two camps. One of them is it can trigger your immune system to turn on you. Okay. Yeah. And then you can, you can get damage, damage to nerves, damage to balance, damage to your to, uh, muscles. Uh, that can be a lingering problem. We've seen this for years in influenza. We've seen it with uh, cytomegalovirus, parvovirus, B, uh, a, a number of other viruses that are out there that uh, a lot of times people come to me and they, they, they have um, nerve issues that can linger many months out. We test them. We see that they have antibodies. We say it's probably that. And then we help them recover and they go on. We're seeing the same thing with COVID. So that's one thing. It's a, this autoimmune illness that, that is now we can see it on such a population scale. We're recognizing it. And you probably have heard this. Uh, people are talking about the 
the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids and adults. Okay. It's this weird, like the body attacking itself, incredibly rare, but we recognize now that it does happen. Uh, the case reports are like less than 0.01% of kids that ex are, are exposed or experience this. So a real number, an incredibly small number when you consider the large population, but great to recognize. The other side is these posts is the virus actually injuring other things than what we think of. So you think of the head and head cold, the chest cold. Well, it's also attacking other things like uh, hearts. So in a rare subset of people, they'll develop heart failure after they have COVID weeks to months out. So now we will, we're wise to recognize that, that, that that's happening. Now, we've talked about in the past, there was a sort of, this is sort of a seasonal approach to viruses where a lot of people thought, okay, we will try to get a lot of work done during the summer months because that's obviously not when that stuff's rampant. Has that cashed out in terms of like, it's getting colder, therefore let's, let's be on the lookout for it a bit more than previous months or does that not matter? COVID doesn't care. You know, we, we combined our approach to COVID with a seasonality that we then missed an opportunity for. We did the social distancing early on, and I, I'm still convinced that that didn't stop this, but really just kind of made it linger uh, like an illness that had to go through our population uh, and, and is now showing it. Some people are calling it a third wave. I, I think it's just the continued uh, response to our, our feeble attempts, honestly, to stop an illness. What we're seeing now is people being back indoors, people returning to group activities, and, and, and uh, what do you know, we're, we're spreading it to each other. Right. Uh, a lot of, so in terms of what comes to mind was the seasonality, and it's been making a lot of headlines one way or f for better or worse, but especially for our community is the holiday guidelines, mm. which can be somewhat laughable. But can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Let's talk about that kind of from a, a meaningful standpoint. Again, we've kind of, I would say that we've contrasted, and I've said in previous interviews that there is, there is a population public health approach. And I, I get that. This is a scary illness. If you're a, a governor and you're trying to do something to slow this down, you might take some, some crazy actions like limiting the, the size of the turkey that people could take home uh, and making people sanitize before they unwrap gifts. I, I don't know. There's a lot of bizarre attempts, but they're, I think, a try, uh, maybe not with great humility to, to stop this. What I think is interesting is I think there's an, there is another consideration of how to approach this illness that has been really stifled. And actually, I think it's been called ugly names, including uh, foolish and, and, and unneighborly. Uh, and that's the willingness of people to recognize their own risks, to take stock in who they are and the real risks of this illness, and then to even consider just moving ahead with the recognition their family might get sick. Our family is that. I mean, we, we took precautions. We were thoughtful in the way that I interact with people who are at risk. It came to our family. We still have no idea who or what, and that's how most people's experience is. But the reality is that there is now something interesting that's happened for our family and many families in our community who are kind of taking the same middle approach, which is we've been sick. Our whole family got sick. We got through it. And now we have strong immunity. And that immunity has now, uh, I believe, a significant blessing, not just to us, not just to my, my mother who's in her late 70s going to come live with us, but to our community. We are now a roadblock to this thing spreading through our community. And if more families were, were like us, and there's actually a growing number of people getting through this and coming out the other side and having developed immunity, 
it's a significant, like significant blessing to our neighbors that we have been willing to get this, take it in stride and now develop immunity. Uh, one thing we've talked about too, is with our community, it's, you know, there's not a, um, I joke all the time. Like if we had like a four lane highway, like the ones I'm used to in Texas, mm. you know, the Boise trip might even be a little bit quicker than it is, <laughs> but given where we are, would you say for a community like ours, COVID just took some time to get here that maybe it wouldn't have other places. So the third way we were, we were long in the line. So while people are in many places around their third or fourth wave, we're really on our, oh, we had a very early showing, showing in March, mostly of travelers, but because we were hiding in our own homes, it just never took root. And now that it's here, it's, it's really unabated through our community. Have you found with your practice, like going on more COVID calls? Yes. Okay. Uh, it, it, COVID is widespread in our community. It's not just in my pa- patient population. It's in all the hospitals and, uh, and unfortunately in some nursing homes. The best efforts have tried and they've slowed it, but it's here now. And so we're working through it. Yep. Now you mentioned you wanted to talk immunity. One thing that came to mind was I saw, I don't remember how long ago, Dr. Ron Paul hmm. had a press conference, I think to some extent and mentioned sort of the immunity that you have after you get the virus. Um, and then that was immediately called into question big mm-hmm. time as being unscientific or, or not. It was, uh, it, he knows better, et cetera. Can you, can you maybe start there with what you wanted to talk about in terms of immunity? I can immediately uh, lose my opportunity to have an audience just by using a couple of special words. And one of them would be herd immunity. Okay. Uh, I would uh, immediately be de- de- decried <laughs> as unscientific, uh, which is a fascinating uh, discussion. It, it is itself a highly unscientific and poorly informed understanding of the way that this world is made. It's also, a, it, it smacks of a, uh, what I think is an alternate agenda. Uh, if you're looking at herd immunity as something to be avoided. So let's talk about immunity. Um, COVID is unique uh, in, in our experience as, as having a giant population and having an amazing body of, of evidence around it in real time. But it's also unique in that we're learning about COVID in very personalized channels that are not giving us good context. Here's what good context is. COVID is not unique in, in its uh, immunity when it, uh, when it encounters a population. And we've known this through every other virus that, we, that our bodies address. Immunity is a unique experience that then our bodies use to be able to protect us for the future. And it's also a unique experience that helps us to protect our neighbor as we develop it. So we know through, uh, let's just speak to COVID itself. We now have an amazing amount of information and there's study after study that's coming out. There was a beautiful study published in late October in the uh, Journal of Science uh, showing 30,000 New Yorkers with amazing IgG, that's the antibody to COVID virus, sustained out to six months. Wow. Wow. That's huge. So that means that, that people who are encountering the illness are not only encountering the illness, but they have in themselves a reservoir of antibodies. So that if that virus came back around, their bodies could see it, attack it, keep it at bay, and it would be rare to get a second uh, round of COVID. Is COVID possible to get it a second time? Yes, of course. We know that this is very much a uh, population experience, but there's also very individual immunities. There are some people who will either because they had such mild illnesses or because they are just plain unlucky or because they, uh, they have bodies that just don't seem to mount an immune response. Their individual experience may be 
that they can get coronavirus over and over again. We know that that's the same situation when it comes to giving everybody a vaccination. Some people will not take. Some people will, you can give them vaccination over and over again. We see this with measles when we, when women are vaccinating for it in pregnancy and they show up after pregnancy after pregnancy, vaccine after vaccine, and they never get an immunity to it, even though they've been given it. Our experience will be very much the same. There'll be some people that get huge amounts of immunity. There'll be a muddy middle of significant immunity that may not be perfect, but will be wonderful. And there'll, of course, be the occasional outlier. Why is it the only ones that make the news are those outliers? I think I saw as of this morning, throughout the globe, there were four people who had retracted Mm. COVID a second time. Isn't that amazing to think about? That is our experience. We see that on Facebook and we start to question herd immunity. And yet we're talking about four people in a planet of 6 billion. I think 6 billion. It might be a few more than that now. It is a loss of perspective. And not only that, it flies in the face of what we understand. But that's how we're gaining information for this. We're using anecdote rather than sound judgment. We're using studies and we're, we love to lob studies of, well, that study and this study, and I'm going to throw this study at you rather than, than um, turning to our physicians. Although, frankly, I, I would say as physicians, we've been some of the worst naysayers. Uh, we seem to have lost a good understanding of what disease is and how to guide people to have a thoughtful approach. Now, can you briefly unpack for me the concept of herd immunity? Like, mm-hmm. how does that work? So, someone, I think someone in the office, we were talking about it, and someone was like, well, wait, so just a certain percentage of people, and then it goes away. And then I started to talk like I knew what it was, and I realized I, I've reached the bottom of Absolutely. So, depth. I think a great way of looking at that is to think about setting up dominoes in a gym. Okay. And you know, everyone's seen those cool YouTube videos where you got a bunch of dominoes and if you start one, it just goes and it goes and goes. And that's how viruses go. They get passed from one individual to another or maybe one to several at a time. Um, but what we're looking for with herd immunity is a break in that link where the dominoes that are toppling one into the next suddenly discover there's a gap. Okay. That gap is immunity of an individual that then is pulled out of that line of dominoes and no longer passing it on to the next person. Got it. So think of it in terms of, uh, I think another way of looking at it is bubbles or spheres of influence. So my, uh, again, I would use the experience of my mother who has been isolating and living in Northern Wisconsin by herself. We love having her come and live with her in the winter months. She, uh, I've been a little bit hesitant and, and concerned about her coming to, to live with us because what if we got coronavirus while she was out here? Um, given her age, she has some risk factors. Now, we instead have this bubble of, well, I've got nine children and grandchildren and, and myself and my wife and, and my in-laws and others now who all uh, have been exposed and most of us who I believe now have strong immunity, who will actually, instead of being the next domino in the chain, be a significant number of buffers around my mother. I would love to see that for more people. And that's the unique thing that comes from herd immunity is it becomes this break in the chain of uh, COVID contagion. That's fascinating. So, I mean, and w- as we were talking about it, I just said, you know, it is a neat thing that God sort of threw in and you kind of got into the individual immunity mm. aspect of that. And then the society level, also fascinating. It is fascinating. And, and, and you will also, if you're reading, you'll see that sometimes the, the immunity wanes off. And there's some studies showing that, that in the UK, that people began to lose some of the IgG and their levels weren't uh, detectable. But what's fascinating is that's just one small element of what God has built into us 
which is this amazing gift of being able to experience our world, develop a sense of what's out there and what's dangerous, and then also what isn't dangerous, which is us, and how to, how to not attack it. That's a dance. That dance is not just one dance, but many different dances, including T-cell immunity, B-cell immunity, innate immunity. Those are big words, but they really basically say that there's more than just one route that we developed immunity. And we retain a seed of that in our lymph nodes and in other areas of our body, in our spleen and some other really remarkable organs that carries us for the rest of our lives. That immunity is also remarkably passed on from mother to child in utero and also while they're breastfeeding. It's one of the glorious things of breastfeeding is this uh, immunity that mom has built from a lifetime experience of fighting off illness in a way that now protects that child. That's wild. It is glorious. So we, at this point of the virus, I suppose, is there anything we should be looking for? So when folks see, uh, as you've been mentioning, we've been getting all this information through mm. weird channels. What do people, what, what would you recommend people look for? Like, is there anything in an article that they should have their eyes on? Well, let's talk about the personal experience of it. So I kind of mentioned my own experience and, and having a, a relatively awful case. There are two things that I encourage people to watch out for. One is transition that we know happens about day five, day six, day seven, where some individuals get this heavy, heavy chest. They might, st might start spitting up kind of this bloody mucus. That is a severe warning sign, particularly if it's with shortness of breath. That is one of those moments where you should be calling your doctor and seeing if they'll get you on a Z-Pak and prednisone, whether maybe some inhaled medications might be helpful. Uh, you should be monitoring your oxygen levels, uh, making sure that you're not going to head towards that patient that gets very, very severely sick. There's a second issue. And just like every virus that we see, like influenza, after people fight an illness, there's oftentimes a, the first punch of a one-two combo uh, where people get pneumonia or a sinus infection or ear infection. That is the second hit. Watch out for that. Basically, someone who's getting better and then suddenly gets worse or they're, they're just stuck. They're day 10, 12, 13, and they just cannot get over a severe weariness, a heavy cough. Again, talk to your doctor. It may be prudent to get a chest x-ray and, and make sure that you're uh, being watched carefully. You know what? I'd like to uh, transition a little bit, and that's yeah, to talk about vaccination. So many, what is hitting the, the headlines this week and last week are two different uh, companies, Pfizer and this week Moderna, with amazing published reports about uh, vaccination working well. And I, I would applaud that. So I've talked a bit about herd immunity. And, and that's obviously a little bit for the brave at heart. Um, I would encourage people that they could look at themselves and look at their families and wisely, thoughtfully move ahead with life as long as the government will let them and maybe even experience the illness to the blessing of their neighbors. But vaccination is interesting and there, it does provide another opportunity for herd immunity. This is herd immunity that's given on a one-by-one -one basis. Uh, we have invested a lot in our government, in our country, more than we ever have at, at a virus. Um, to be able to achieve this. I'm thankful for two regards. One is we live in a country that is able to make pretty remarkable things in a relatively thoughtful, expedient, and what appears to be safe, relatively safe uh, way of approaching it. There are some pitfalls, and we've talked a little bit about this before. One of the pitfalls is when you expose someone's immune system to a vaccine, you are going to find some people do not have a good reaction. Uh, you are, and we know this, and, and I wish we would admit it more, uh, that sometimes as we do childhood vaccinations or as adult vaccinations, we have some people that don't, they have a, a really bad outcome, whether it's allergic 
whether it's a trigger of their autoimmunity, whether it's a, a severe reaction, it can be even life-threatening or life-altering. I, I do, I, there are some early indications that COVID vaccine is not going to be any different. Is this something we should fear? Uh, it's something we should be thoughtful about. And I think open as physicians, be willing to discuss. Uh, the second is that COVID vaccines, uh, about 25% of the vaccines, there's about 20 of them in production that have made it through the first pass or first opportunity. But about one in four of them are based on embryonic stem cells. I don't know if we've talked about that yet. Uh, I'd love to be able to talk in a future program about yes. vaccination and yes. some of the pitfalls. But embryonic stem cells is just another name for uh, tissue that was taken from an aborted child and then now is used to produce medical therapies. It's been used now to make more and more therapies, including one, of, one in four or 25% uh, of these vaccinations that are in production. The two that have made it to the top so far are the earliest out of the gate. Uh, the Pfizer vaccine, there's some information that they used embryonic stem cells in their research. Uh, and yet, uh, they're also openly reporting, and I've seen several kind of watchdog organizations uh, point that, that they're not using it in production. What an unfortunate thing. Uh, and this is uh, the problem that we're going to face as Christians walking faithfully is how to even find out if these are being used. The Moderna uh, does not appear to, to have any, but again, uh, any use of embryonic stem cells in its production. But again, it's, it's going to take some thoughtful investigation and I think some pressure from Christians to say this is important, this should not be done, and this needs to change. Wow. So the, the front, the two front runners, we know that they at least use them in research, but likely, it doesn't, doesn't. Likely use their research. Pfizer openly okay. used it in research. Uh, we don't know yet about Moderna. I think that information is forthcoming. That's the challenge actually in a lot of medical therapies. And it's one of the reasons I think Christians often pause when they think about uh, medicines and whether they're being brought to brought to bear in a, in a, in a way that is life-giving. Definitely something for us at least to be on the lookout for. Yes. Uh, do, do you have any, you mentioned a few watchdog organizations. Do you recommend any for people to check out? Um, so I, I would encourage you to Google it. Uh, the uh, If you're a Catholic listener, I, I applaud the Catholics for being very diligent on this front. Most of the watchdog organizations are Catholic okay. and, and are being uh, very active on this. The, the In general vaccination, uh, child of life, uh, I think is what you'd Google to find out. Uh, the vaccinations in general, and I apologize, I don't recall the the link for for okay. it. But I would encourage you. The information's out there, uh, as long as Google's not burying it too far down the page. That's right. So, with you mentioned, there were certain countries that were doing the uh, zinc packs mm -hmm. and vitamin C. Is there anything just for whether people have had it or gone through it or haven't yet? Do you recommend anything like that? to folks just like in this weird time that they kind of be juicing up on any of those things? I belong to an organization called the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. Okay. Uh, and, and I would encourage you to Google that. Uh, there's a guide to ambulatory COVID therapy. It's a patient-oriented guide. I'd encourage people if they want to know more on how to talk with their physicians, how to inform their physicians, and, and how to uh, use thoughtful therapies that are actually in use in most of the world. Uh, interesting enough, not in the United States. Okay. Okay. So there's probably a lot there. And then it, I, I, there I, is. And in the United States, we're seeing a much higher mortality rate and a much higher hospitalization rate than much of the world that is actively using this. In India, for instance, they're uh, handing out like it's uh, 
like it's water on the street signs. And you would think, wait a sec, we're fancier and better at medicine than India. Uh, maybe not so much. Maybe we've, our, and I think that our, our unbalanced approach has given us some blind sides. Yeah. I mean, of all places, I, I, one of the things that you've said in previous episodes that has really stuck with me is just there is an assumption, and maybe because of the first world sort of uh, comforts and privileges that we've had in medicine, that we shouldn't be sick. That baseline assumption that sort of maybe informs some of the unbalanced approaches, it, it seems like can, can cause things to be worse. Well, isn't that the big picture? The big picture is uh, a lack of humility and one where we, we believe that we can stave off death for all comers. I do think it has made us as physicians who, uh, who, who are treating patients, we have to check our hearts and our motives. Where does, where does our understanding of, of death come from? Where does our understanding of disease come from? Where does our, our understanding of what a physician's role is? I've heard it once said, uh, and it was by a mentor of mine, that basically all physicians are palliative physicians. Every one of our patients comes into life with a, a prognosis that they will, well, as one wise guy put it, 80 years in, uh, in Psalm 90, uh, maybe a few more, maybe a few less, um, but none of us are going to make it out of life. When we save patients, as we commonly use the term for when we cure cancer, what we're doing is just delaying something. And I think it's, I think it's a glorious delay. I, I, I believe me that I, I have given my life to uh, the reduction of symptoms, to uh, the desire to see life extended, to the desire to see us live long, to see our children and our children's children. And yet we have given ourselves in this society so fully over to uh, a belief that we can stave off death that we are unprepared for when it does happen. And we're also unprepared to guide people as a culture through something like a pandemic where we will know that some people will go. I think a better way of looking at this is to call it a flash flood. We have actually kind of held off the flash flood and perhaps we've bottled it up behind a dam in a way that may actually, I think in the long run, give us a worse outcome as a nation. But this is a flash flood and, and I think one of the better approaches would have been to say, Let's get those that are at risk, that are in the low valleys, let's get them up to the high places and protect them. And we'll do our best through this deluge to uh, love and care for each other. Instead, what we've begun to do, instead of caring for our neighbors in that way, is begin to cast dispersion on each other to treat people who get COVID like they did something that was wrong, to, uh, that was their fault, or who is it that, that was in that line that gave it to you. And then to even portray the goal of, of getting through this, uh, we have no way of telling people, what do you do after you get this? Right. I'd love to give people a big button that they wear on their shirt that they can greet people with a smile and they can tear off that mask and they say, I'm immune. And I have conquered this virus through God's kindness. And now I can be a blessing to you and let's get through this. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, your time is almost up. You have two minutes. Ah, two uh, minutes. Do you have any, th do, you, do you want, you, you've done an awesome job. I've appreciated your final thoughts. Absolutely. Um, you know, let's uh, take a moment just to pray and give God the glory. Perfect. Father, uh, we thank you for uh, the way that you have given us understanding, that you've invited us to know you, a consistent, good God who is active in this world. Father, thank you that you've given us minds and hearts. But Father, I also ask that you'd give us humility, that we might uh, come to a point where we recognize that you are God and we are not. Father, cause us to uh, declare you as, as our Savior and Lord. 
Father, give us opportunities to, as we walk faithfully, even in times of, of such hurt and ugliness, uh, in times where people are sick, in times of even loss, uh, to be able to, to love graciously as you love the world. Father, we thank you through your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.